Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this time by Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Stephen Hackett. Hello. Hey, Jason. It's good to be back talking about space. A lot of space stuff going on. A lot of space news. A whole a whole bunch of stuff. And I think we're going to start with new astronauts. Yes. So there was a big rollout event in Houston uh, last week, I think, or maybe a week and a half ago, about who is going to be on the mission's that are the first commercial crew missions. Now, people who've been listening to this podcast know we've been talking about commercial crew since the very beginning. Really, everybody's been talking about commercial crew since STS-135 launched, the last shuttle mission. And did I mention that I, I went to that one? I think I've yeah. mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, But it's funny because I feel like a little bit of ownership. It's like, those are my shuttle astronauts. That's my shuttle. Um, anyway, so people have been waiting. There have been a lot of delays. We've talked about a lot of the delays. Sometimes I feel like we should change the name of this podcast to be Liftoff Delayed or Liftoff Scrubbed um, because there's a lot of delays in space, turns out, to get to space. But they did this event. Uh, Bridenstine, the NASA administrator, was there. Uh, they invited the press. And there's a suggestion that this is the moment where they're really getting on I think what they called increased confidence in the schedules for commercial crews. So Mm -hmm. these are, the idea here is Boeing and SpaceX have both been working to build capsules so that they can send people into space. Sending people into space has a whole other degree of difficulty because you've got to keep the people alive and healthy and happy in space. And the goal is to send them to the International Space Station. So they've both been working on this. There's Crew Dragon and there's the Boeing thing, which uh, I'm blanking on the name of it now. What's it called? I forget. The mm. awesome Boeing thing. The CS2, the CST-100 Starliner. Starliner, right. Starliner. How could I forget Starliner? Because it's Boeing, right? So they've got airliners and they've got Starliners. Anyway, um, so what they announced is uh, part of the crew for two phases. There's the test phase. And the mission phase, which is after the test. So they're going to each each is going to run a test with people. So there's there's a test flight coming of SpaceX of Crew Dragon without people in it. But then they're going to do a test with with people in it. And it's dated April 2019. And like I said, increased confidence that April 2019 may be when this actually happens. So less than a year away. And they announced two space shuttle veterans, including one who was on STS-135, uh, to do the SpaceX test. That's Robert Behnken and Douglas Hurley. And Douglas Hurley was one of the 135 astronauts. Um, so that's April. And then Boeing, they're saying mid-2019. So although they're increasingly confident about mid-2019, they're not confident enough to put a month on it. So <laughs> It's mid, mid-2019. It's a range, you know. They, a- they didn't say completely confident. They just said an increasingly <laughs> confident. It's not the it's same. A, a when you start chart. not confident, you just it, you move toward confidence. Yeah. Anyway, Boeing Starliner and... Uh, they are going to have three people on that test, which is interesting. Now, all of these craft, I think, are designed for four people on the crew. Um, but you, oftentimes you end up with a smaller crew for the test flights. You think about the space shuttle sure. having all those test flights with two crew, even though they could carry seven. So Boeing's going to have three in their test flight in mid-2019, including 
Chris Ferguson, who is the commander of STS-135, the last shuttle mission. So there's some interesting symbolism there. Also interesting, he has been a Boeing employee working on Starliner. So he's a Boeing employee and astronaut and former NASA astronaut. It's an interesting world we live in with commercial crew, but I think really smart on Boeing's part, too, to say we're just going to hire a shuttle commander and he's going to be one of the people who's working on our crew vehicle and then he's going to be in our crew vehicle. So that's cool. And then there are two other astronauts, Eric Bowe and Nicole uh, Anapu Mann, who are going to be also on that test. And I think they're both rookie astronauts. So when all of that is said and done, then they move to what they're calling the post-certification missions. So assuming the tests go well, the next step is post-cert missions. And those are ones that actually are going to the ISS. I believe the test missions are going up and coming back, but not docking with the ISS. That's right, right? I think so, yeah. I believe I believe you were correct. I think that that's like first things first. So then the the um these missions are people who are going to go to the ISS and then be on the ISS. So it's you actually have to do like crew rotation issues and there are things like that, but it's it's a bigger deal. And they've announced uh, two of the people on those missions. So the first Boeing uh, post-cert mission, it's Josh Casada, who I believe is a rookie from the 2013 astronaut class, and Sunita Williams, who has a bunch of records on the International Space Station. She's a space station vet. Um, but like I said, the four people fit on these things. So one of the things that they didn't announce is who else but that there will be two other people tbd and it may be that the those two people stay on the iss and then the other two come back after a shorter period of time i'm with two people from the iss there's some crew rotation things going on here that i don't entirely understand but they've got the people who are going to be like flying that mission and then for crew dragon the same thing the first post-cert mission there and that's victor glover who is i believe also a 2013 uh, astronaut class rookie and mike hopkins who is a space station veteran as well so you can see the combination they're going for there and two tbd and uh the way this also works because these vehicles are different is my understanding is that at some point if you're going to be operating the vehicle so not necessarily if you're just a passenger but if you're one of the two who's operating this vehicle you have to spend time and get up to speed on that vehicle and we've got a case now where with commercial crew nasa is going to be putting astronauts on two different vehicles um, with different characteristics. So you basically need to choose, it's like choosing a major or something. You got to choose your, uh, you know, or be, or be assigned to Boeing or SpaceX. And then, uh, and, and, but anyway, I've, it feels like we're moving along. It's feel, it feels more real now, I think, which is, I think what they were going for in having this event was to make people feel like that they were really making progress toward getting commercial crew literally off the ground. Yeah, I mean, when when you have faces, and you know, I watched interviews with a bunch of these astronauts, like you, you can f- kind of get a feel for who they are. Yeah, it feels way more real than like, oh, well, one day we'll we'll do this. Cause the reality is, these people have all been working behind the scenes. I'm sure for quite some time, especially uh, Chris Ferguson, who is a Boeing employee. Oh, yeah. But now we see them there in the public eye, and yeah, I think you're right. It's like a it's a PR step, but I think it's an important one to making it feel like this is finally, you know, finally almost here. Yeah, I think it's good marketing. Also, it's not as if there haven't been American astronauts going up to the ISS all this time, but they're going up on the Russian spacecraft. 
And it is almost like they're saying, here's a new batch of astronauts, even though a lot of these people are veterans. But it's like, let's mention the shuttle, how a bunch of these people did the shuttle, a bunch of these people did ISS. And um, now they're going to be going up from the U.S., on, uh, you know, in missions from U.S. hardware to the International Space Station. And there definitely is, uh, I think, quite rightly, they're trying to market that. that I saw somebody say it's like nine astronauts, so it's like the new, new nine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think it's all clever. Um, I did have a moment where I rolled my eyes where um, somebody, and I don't even remember who it was, was it Mike Pence maybe, who said NASA is back? And the implication I felt like was like finally under this administration, NASA has got it together. When in fact, like this whole process started in the George W. Bush administration. <laughs> it's been a long time coming, but the fact is, it is politics to a certain extent. And whoever happens to be there when the music stops gets to take the credit for it. Like how Richard Nixon got to have his signature on the moon, even though he inherited that program from Kennedy and Johnson. So either way, I think it's smart for NASA to make a big deal about this. A lot of the public perception of NASA, rightly or wrongly, and I think it's largely wrongly, is that after the space shuttle, they haven't done anything. We know that's not true, but that is a public perception. And so they're really, this is the first, like, I'd say this is the starting gun of the, of the campaign and the marketing to to get back to sort of like the U.S. return to flight, return to space, even though we never really left uh, because the perception is that we left and that this will be the way that they kind of say, see, we told you we would be back. Yeah, I think a lot of people view like crude spacecraft, crude missions like that. That's what NASA does. And all this stuff we're going to talk about in the rest of this episode, (laughs) the whole rest of the episode is about stuff NASA is doing. That's not that, but people are drawn to those, you know, we put people on top of a rocket and shoot them into space. And I understand why, but I agree with you. It's, it's not a, it's not really true. Yeah. So up next, we have a free range planet. It's uh, it's not, it's not caged to a star, Jason. You can't keep this planet down. No, no, this planet gets to Rome and, uh, I was going to say stand in the sunlight, but there's no there's no sunlight. Boy, I love rogue planets. They terrify me, but I also love them. I love the idea that they're just planets just floating around. Like they could be anywhere. They're like uh like uh like little billiard balls that have just flown off the table and they never came back down and they're just out there. I I read a science fiction novel about a about a disaster where a rogue planet uh flies through a a star system and it's going to destroy a planet that's got life on it. And they've got to go there and like learn what they can before the rogue planet comes. It's like rogue, rogue planet, scary. It's a planet gone bad. Right. Uh, but it's really just a planet that's been ejected from its solar system or was never in a solar system, which is the story with this one. Um, this is about 20 light years from us. Um, they, they use the national science foundation's very large array to make radio observations, which are the first of a planetary mass object beyond our solar system. It's the first time researchers have measured the magnetic field of such a body. It's got a terrible name. It's uh, SIMP J0136563 plus 0933473. Woo! Yeah. Rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> yeah. yeah. First discovered uh, 2016. At the time, they thought it was a brown dwarf. Um, which is a an object that is 
more like a failed star. It's too big to be a planet, but it didn't have enough mass to ignite and be a star. Um, the, last year, the study showed this this object to be 12.7 time, times the mass, 1.2 times the radius of Jupiter. So much more massive than Jupiter, but not much larger than Jupiter. Um, there's a you know, you thought the discussions of definition of a planet were controversial. There is a question like what side of the line this thing is on, because when something is not igniting, is not a star on the main sequence, what is it? Like the brown dwarfs we've sort of said are, they're like stars, but they're not. Um, it, and so when when is a brown dwarf just a big planet, a big gas giant? And it, it, I think it's arguable, right? Um but it, it, there is definitely a class of object that is a big gas object that is not big enough to be a star. And Jupiter and Saturn are great examples of that in our solar system. This thing is way more massive than that, but it's also not a star. And it's floating out there. So maybe it was ejected from a solar system or a forming system, or maybe it is, you know, it just formed and this is all it has. Um, I think the suggestion is that it probably got ejected, but but they don't know. And it's hot. That's the other thing that struck me about it is it's hot. It's got a surface temperature of 1500 degrees Fahrenheit, which is way more than Venus, which is the hottest planet in our solar system. Mm-hmm. It's generating its own heat. It doesn't have a sun radiating it where it can trap the heat like Venus does. Um, it should theoretically have a spectacular auroras and in fact that was how they used the radio telescope to spot it was it has these incredible auroras that are throwing off uh electromagnetic waves and so theoretically you could find other exoplanets using this same technique or confirm exoplanets around uh, systems where you might have spotted them by other means if they're large enough and they can generate these kind of aurorae which is pretty cool but it's um yeah, it's got to be lonely out there, though. Lonely for a rogue planet. Well, it's 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 massive, so it has itself to keep itself company. Yeah, yeah, it's I, it's cool. I mean, some people have talked about like the idea that if you've got a planet that's this hot, like that's just so weird. Like it's out. You think of a rogue planet as being in the in you know the dead of empty space with no sun to warm it, but it's actually just because of its own internal heat. It's a. It's still a very, very hot object. Obviously, not hot enough to have, not big enough to have ignited fusion to become a star. But still, there's enough there that it's generating heat. I, I agree with you. There's something. There's something sort of creepy about rogue yeah. planets. I mean, it's like uh, I don't know. I mean, it's just right. It's just it's not quite right. Like they're lost, and it's scary. Like. You know, what would happen if the Earth was a rogue planet? The answer is we would freeze and we would all die. So it's like, it's scary. It's like a graveyard or something like that. Um, But at the same time, they're really cool because you can't, you know, they're all, they're out there. There are probably all sorts of interesting rogue planets out there, but how do you even see them? Because they're far away and uh, they aren't lit up because, you know, stars are basically what we see. Things that are generating a lot of electromagnetic activity, which is why the Aurora gave this one away. Yeah, because if they're not orbiting a star, you know, we've talked about this a lot. The way we find a lot of exoplanets is when they transit a star. So we see the dips in light from a star. We figure, oh, there's a planet. We can learn about its size and how fast it's orbiting. But these aren't doing that. They're not orbiting around a star. They're just they're just going where they you know where they're going and drifting through the solar system, yeah. interacting power gravitationally with others. Yeah, yeah. So it's 
Yeah, it's an organic free-range planet. There's no other way to describe it. <laughs> Jason, it is August. You know what that means? It's Relay Membership Month. It is. I thought you were going to say back to school or, I don't know. But the most important thing, also true. listener, more important is the Relay Membership Drive. So you can support our shows directly. Shows like Liftoff, shows like upgrade and download other things jason does on the network things like connected other things i do on the network all the great shows on relay fm you can learn more by going to relay.fm slash membership and signing up to be a member gets you cool perks you get members only content like a monthly behind the scenes newsletter 5k desktop wallpapers of relay fm show art a monthly relay fm host crossover show where i take hosts that don't do shows together and stick them together on a Skype call and we talk about something for half an hour. And, of course, access to a full feed of bonus episodes of Relay FM shows published throughout August and September, including access to our very own special bonus episode of Liftoff. Jason, you want to talk about that, what we're going to do? Yeah, so we're going to, we usually watch something and uh, and then talk about it. We did Apollo 13, right? That was one of ours, right? Mm-hmm. So we're going to do, um, I think we're going to do Mercury 13, which is on Netflix. It's a documentary about women who wanted to be astronauts in the Mercury era. And uh, we'll watch it and then we'll talk about it. Yeah, it'll be fun. So keep an eye out for that uh, here in a couple of weeks. But if you're a member to any show, you get access to all of the membership shows. And we should... We should say just real quick that we have uh, changed the URL of the feed we use for bonus content. So if you're an active member, you've already gotten an email about that. If you've previously canceled your membership, you'll need to sign up again to get access to the new feed. Once again, that URL is relay.fm slash membership. Thank you for support of the network and thank you for your support of Liftoff. Yeah. Um, we're going to... Uh, talk a little bit more about things at the at the outer edges of the solar system, things that are, are a little weird. This is a what we're going to call a hydrogen wall, although it's really maybe a, a sphere. And so if you, if you think way back when we talked about the Voyager, the Voyager probes and we did our sun episode, we have the solar wind, which we're going to talk about after the break. These particles streaming off our sun uh, into the solar system, right? These These ionized particles. And you have... At the edge of the solar system, you have a, a, a zone where their energy is being depleted because they're really far out from the, from the sun, really far out where Voyager is. And we get to the edge of the heliosphere, the edge of the sun's influence in the solar system. And Voyager actually, like three decades ago, measured a lot of um, sort of background noise out there at the edge. And it was believed that it was hydrogen particles that were basically colliding with the, the solar wind at the very end of its reach. And it would kind of, they'd kind of lock heads out there in the outer solar system. We'd have hydrogen not being able to come in any further because the solar winds were holding it back. And the idea is that these hydrogen particles sort of build up out there on the, the very edge of the sun's influence. But it was 30 years ago, and there's actually a debate about what exactly Voyager saw, uh, what it detected, how correct its measurements were. What turns out, the New Horizons team has been scanning for this for years, actually since before the Pluto encounter. 
And they are now, as we know, uh, chasing down its Kuiper Belt object, 2014 MU69. It's 4 billion miles from Earth. And it has seen this ultraviolet emission that Voyager saw, this this ultraviolet light being beamed into our solar system from this hyd- from this hydrogen particle mass at the edge of the sun's influence. And it's pretty cool that when you look at what Voyager saw three decades ago, what New Horizons is now seeing, that it's basically the same thing, that once they sort of fine-tuned the Voyager discovery with, with more information, they believe this is a confirmation of what Voyager saw, that there is a, a sphere of the sun's influence, and just at the edge of that, there's hydrogen that can't get in. And it's just like hanging out there, trying to fight its way in, but it can't building this sort of sphere of, of hydrogen particles at the very, very edge of the solar system. I love things that are way out there. This is a little less creepy, but um, it's cool. Like, this is, how, how would we ever learn this? How would we ever um, learn about this stuff? And, and the fun thing is, it's a byproduct of exploring um, the outer solar system for its planets. But then once you've got the instruments out there, you know, scientists are like, say... If you do have sensors that are way out there, uh, could you look for this hydrogen wall? Like, <laughs> And so we've learned with Voyager especially, and now with New Horizons, we'll also learn lots of things about what happens out there at the far reaches of the solar system. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Voyager is now at the very edge of the heliosphere, depending on who you ask and when you read, maybe past it into interstellar space. And so it has has in the past or will in the near future pass through uh, this section of hydrogen, and then and be be out past it. Uh, the only reason I said it, it's sort of it's sort of weird is that it's so far away, and it's so sort of foreign to how we think about the solar system. Like so much of what uh, defines so many things in our solar system is the sun's influence, not just its heat and light, but these these particles streaming off of it. To be at the edge of that, where the sun has no influence anymore. We're talking a long way out, and again, someplace that we would never know about. We would never, we can't see this from Earth. We can only see it when we put a robotic mission way out into the outer solar system. Yep, I, it's almost as if we should do more planetary science. <gasps> yeah, it's a good idea. It's mm. a good idea. Uh, we're going to talk about actually NASA's newest newest exploration uh, right after I tell you about our sponsor this week. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain, award-winning templates, and more. Maybe you want to create an online store, or maybe you want a portfolio to show off your work, or maybe you want to start blogging. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do all of those things. The best part is there's nothing to install, no like server patches to worry about, no software upgrades needed. Squarespace simply has it covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need help, and they let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. And of course, you can use any one of their award-winning templates that are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. At RelayFM, we use Squarespace for our blog. Anytime we have an announcement about a live recording or a new podcast launching or merchandise or anything like that, uh, we talk about it on the blog and we do that with Squarespace because it's fast and it's easy. Squarespace is also affordable. Plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com liftoff. And when you do decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for this show. Once again, that's squarespace.com liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for their support. Squarespace. 
make your next move, make your next website. All right, so we're going to talk about the Parker Solar Probe. It lifted off early, 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 early Sunday morning (laughs) from Florida. It was one of those launches where I went to bed. Hold on, Stephen. They're sending a a, a spaceship to the sun, and they launched it at night? How is this possible? I don't know. I'm not in charge of these things. The sun comes back around. It's fine. Uh, The Earth's not flat. What? It was one of the launches. uh, Sometimes I have this where, like, I guess I'll wake up and I'll know if it was successful. Like, the first thing you do is, like, look at my space list on Twitter uh, to catch up on the news. But it was uh, launched aboard a ULA Delta IV Heavy I only mentioned that because this was like a beefed up version of this rocket. It has, uh, you know, it's got three boosters strapped side by side. And then the upper stage was a solid booster because they need a lot of speed for this for this mission. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later. They're using Venus to even speed things up even faster. Um, but it's a it's a big boy rocket. And what, what I think is kind of neat, it's named after solar scientist Eugene Parker, it's actually the first time a spacecraft has been named after a living person. Parker is 91 years old, and he attended the launch. Uh, I saw a little bit of video with him talking about it. I think that's really that's a nice thought. We have a link in the show notes to a thing in the New York Times about him and his work. Yeah, it- Parker predicted the existence of solar wind back in 1958. And this is a time where basically everything everybody thought that space was a pure vacuum, that there was a total vacuum, nothing in the space in between planets and stars. And the idea of particles streaming out from the sun, like we just talked about, that was way out there. And what's neat in reading this article about him, comets actually helped Parker come to his conclusion. So the tail of gas and dust coming from a comet does not flow behind, I'm put behind in air quotes, behind the comet, you know, from its mm. direction of travel. But instead, its direction always points away from the sun. He theorized that the sun is off-putting something that is causing that uh, to happen. So when when he published his paper, by the way, which I think is really interesting, the the readers for that scientific journal rejected it, mm-hmm. and they rejected it not for any scientific reasons. And he he complained, he appealed this, not for any scientific reasons because, but because it was just known or assumed that space was a vacuum and that this couldn't be possible. And I believe it was uh, Chandra Sekhar of the, of the Chandra Sekhar limit who was at the university of Chicago and said, no, 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 publish the paper. Like this is, this is good science, publish the paper. But he was, he almost didn't get to publish this because it was so, unorthodox mm-hmm. and I, I, that that's that those are the moments where science and people involved in science have to remember that you got to be open to these ideas because there is a tendency in science despite all of our talk of the scientific method there can be a tendency it's only human to be resistant to radical ideas and and some of those radical ideas most of them maybe are ridiculous but some of them are going to be right and it's worth evaluating them on their merits and not just saying well no 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 everybody knows this isn't true um and he got it published and people were still super skeptical until there was scientific evidence that he was right and he only had to wait a handful of years uh, mariner 2 in 1962 i believe measured you guessed it energetic particles streaming from the sun. So sometimes we have these these ideas or these theories and it takes a lifetime to prove them out. And Parker only had to wait 
a couple of years, which is probably probably a big relief. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm sure he was happy because his career was probably just kind of hanging out there during mm-hmm. that entire period. It's interesting too. We know now, but think about the 1950s. Russia and the U.S. weren't exactly sharing discoveries with each other. Uh, these particles were actually measured with Luna One, a Russian mission in 1959, just a year after Parker's paper. But the U.S. didn't know about that until much later. So for a long time, we thought we discovered these, and turns out we confirmed an earlier Russian discovery. But, you know, we weren't talking. What are, what are you going to yeah. do? We were broken up, Jason. We were broken up. Can't, yeah. Can't help it. So we fast forward to 2005 when NASA requests engineers at John Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory to come up with a, an, uh, a mission and a spacecraft for a solar probe that would swoop within a few million miles of the sun and measure things like its atmosphere and what it's doing. And, uh, and here we are. We, we got ourselves a, a solar probe. Yeah, it's uh, an exciting. I mean, the sun like is so important. <laughs> it kind of goes without saying, right? Like, <laughs> the sun is important. The sun is the reason we're here, um, and the sun is not widely, you know, it's not as understood as you might think, right? It's an incredibly huge, important, complicated thing, and we are um, ninety-three million miles away. We are far, far away from it. And I, I read a couple articles about the Parker Solar Probe when we were prepping this episode. And one image that stuck with me is that we're a rock sitting way downstream, trying to figure out the source of the water that's flowing to us, where it's like, you know, we can do a lot, but we're very far away. And there's a lot that we don't we don't understand. So the right way to do this and, you know, and it's fascinating stuff. And, it, and it, it's amazing that something so important is not as well known as it should be. Um, but the challenge is instrumentation. The challenge is how you get something close enough. The, this is the probe that is famously going to touch the sun. It's going to be in the corona, which is the hottest part of the sun. Um, and they, we don't even understand entirely why that is. Why, as you get off the surface of the sun, suddenly everything gets way hotter. That's very strange, and, and it's not widely, you know, it's not really understood. So to build this thing was a huge engineering challenge. It's going to be um, all, uh, closer than 4 million miles. It's like a, we think of Mercury as being right up against the sun. It's like a tenth of the distance that Mercury is from the sun. It's right up snuggling up against the sun that's six million kilometers to the sun it's super close um and it's got this huge heat shield so that's like the key piece of technology that has had to exist for this uh, idea of sending a probe to understand the sun um that had to that had to be created is this heat shield it's like a carbon foam heat shield they apparently the carbon composite manufacturing understanding of how to do that has really improved in the last 10 or 20 years that allowed them to create this foam heat shield that will always sit. They have like super high quality attitude controls as well, because that heat shield always has to be between the probe and the sun. And it, uh, it is four and a half inches thick. So about 11 and a half centimeters thick. And, it's white because it's trying to reflect as much as it can. And here's the amazing thing. Even when you're, they're in this incredibly hot corona, 
the instruments on the Parker Solar Probe should be around 80 degrees Fahrenheit. So like a warm room temperature, but basically room temperature, even though they're going to be in one of the very hottest places you could possibly be, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, it and is. <laughs> also, also made me laugh that it's solar powered. Yeah. Because... But it's actually an issue, right? The solar panels have water running through them to take the heat away because you stick those little solar panels out and they're getting battered by the sun. So it's actually got a system where it can stick them out. It can bring them back in. It can protect itself at various points, um, which is why the first design had a plutonium power source instead, but they decided that was way too expensive. So instead they've got these solar panels that are water-cooled that can kind of get out there and then it, it, there's just huge amounts of engineering to make it work. Yeah, I, I think about the scene. This is uh, maybe just speaks to where I am in life with young children. But there's a scene in Wally where he charges. He's he's a solar powered robot, but he's flying near a star, and it, you know he charges within like a second or two. Um, I sort of had that thought of like, yeah, of course it'd be solar powered. It's right there. But then you realize the problem with the with the heat. So yeah, these. These solar panels, um, they're actually not very large when you look at pictures of this spacecraft. You know, you think about something like Juno around Jupiter has, you know, massive solar arrays. But this, because it's so close, they're just itty-bitty, and they it can bring them out and then put them back in depending on what it needs to do. So a lot of clever engineering here. But yeah, that fact about the instruments being at room temperature really blew my mind when I read it. That, that heat shield is doing that much work to keep things cool. Yeah, and you can see why without that technology, it just wouldn't be viable. Uh, so let's talk some about about some of those instruments, about what this uh, probe is carrying on it. Uh, we'll start with the fields instrument. It captures the scale and shape of the electric and magnetic fields in the sun's atmosphere. So it has five antennas, four of which stick out beyond the heat shield into direct sunlight. It's kind of sticking out a little bit. And they are measuring these fields as it, as it travels through them yeah so it, it is it is assessing this magnetic field and it's uh would you like to know what field stands for because it's all caps it is all caps a- as if it was a backronym you know what it stands for hit me <laughs> electromagnetic fields investigation so it's just it's just a word from the name capitalized <laughs> it's uh as far uh, as i can inception. tell it's inception yeah. What does the field stand for in the name? Well, it stands for what it stands F- for. The fields that we're measuring, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. What's next? I love it. I love it. Uh, next is the Wide Field Imager for Solar Probe, or Whisper. Mm. Okay. Uh, this is the only Im- imaging instrument aboard the spacecraft, the only pictures we will get of any kind. And what Whisper is doing is looking at the large-scale structure of the corona and the solar wind. Before the craft flies through it, it's going to use the heat shield to block most of the light and uh, make its own little eclipse, basically, to look at the corona. It has a bunch of baffles of material around it to reflect and absorb stray light that has been reflected or diffracted off the edge of the heat shield or other parts of the spacecraft. So this is a clever way. Why don't we build an imager that is actually able to use the heat shield as a light block in order to image other parts of the sun? Then we have sweep, solar wind, electrons, alphas, and protons investigation. Uh-huh. That was pretty yeah. good. That that basically works for me. Okay. Unlike some of the others. Uh, and it 
has two complementary instruments. So it has the Solar Probe Cup and the Solar Probe Analyzer. So SPC and SPAN. Maybe Spick and SPAN? Oh, that's good. Spick and SPAN. Oh, man. <laughs> I really love They're, it so far. These, the sweet people are out of control. Oh, my God. <laughs> Spick and SPAN. The instrument, so they count abundant particles in the solar wind, electrons, protons, helium ions, and they're looking at speed, density, and temperature. So it has the solar probe cup, this little opening that sticks out from the heat shield. It was scooping these up as it as it flies through uh, flies through space, and then measuring them as they as they pass through. So it's like a little funnel, a uh, little cup, and it is analyzing these particles as they basically stream stream through it. That's cool. Um, you want me to talk about the next one? Yes. It's weird. It's uh, ESIS, even though it looks like ISIS. And it's IS, symbol for the sun, which is a circle with a dot in the center, IS. <laughs> so, like, it's an unpronounceable acronym yeah. that's not quite an acronym. ESIS. Because it's also... Integrated science for investigation of the sun is ISIS. That's I S I S. They must have had a problem with like like terrorism. Yeah, that name's been taken by another group. Well, isn't ISIS isn't ISIS a, a, an Egyptian goddess who's like a, she wasn't the sun god though. Ra Ra was the sun god. Anyway, uh, so what they did was they put a symbol in between the two ISs and then said it's pronounced ISIS. Actually, it's pronounced ISIS. Okay, whatever. Anyway, Integrated Science Investigation of the Sun. It's a tool that measures and identifies carbon, oxygen, neon, magnesium, silicon, iron, and two isotopes of helium so we can see what is going on, what elements are happening and moving around and doing what they do in the sun. It looks like a half dome. It's got 80 tiny little viewfinders. Particles will stream in through them and pass through two carbon uh, polyamide aluminum foils. Aluminum foil. It's not like that. Not not that same kind of aluminum foil, and they measure the energy and impact. So they are they are tasting the uh, output of the sun and figuring out what the composition of the particles is. There's a picture of this on one of the uh, NASA uh, websites, and it's um it look it's like like a half dome. It's like you know it, it's got all these little windows on it. Uh, they compare it to a sea urchin. I'm not sure. I don't know if I see that or not. But it has all these viewfinders, so these things can come in and and pass through this this center section to get measured. Pretty cool. Uh, talk about the mission goals. Um, probably pretty clear at this point, but it is to trace the flow of energy that heats and accelerates the solar corona and solar winds. So we spoke about this on our sun episode. The corona, like we don't really understand why it's as hot as it is. Super, super heated. And that is the thing. It's getting hotter and accelerating out and it gusts out for the solar wind. And yeah, the process is not really understood. So ho- hoping to put such shed some light, shed some uh. sunlight on it. I'm so sorry. Mm. So sorry. Uh, looking to determine the structure and dynamics of the plasma and magnetic field at the source of the solar wind. So that's what a lot of these instruments are about, measuring what particles are actually in the solar wind. What is it actually off-putting, how fast they're going. And then to explore mechanisms that accelerate and transport energetic particles. So why are they moving the way that they are? Like you said earlier, yeah. the sun is this central part of our solar system. It's the reason that we're here, but there's so little we understand about it. So many things that are that are a mystery, and solar winds really the same thing, right? It 
defines the size of the solar system. And we don't, there's so much that we don't know. I, I really hope, and I think NASA hopes the Parker Solar Probe is going to answer those questions over the course of its seven-year mission. And we should talk about the mission and the trajectory because it's, it's pretty interesting. We mentioned the speed at which uh, they were uh, escaping Earth. It's going to be at Venus very soon. And the craft is actually going to use Venus in a series of seven flybys to gradually shrink its orbit around the sun. So again, we spoke about Juno uh, coming out and then going in and circling Jupiter and then coming back out. And it's very similar to this. The the probe will circle Venus and go into the sun and over these passes, get closer to the sun and faster as it slingshots back around. Like you said, it's well within the orbit of, of Mercury, seven times closer to the sun than any spacecraft has come before, thanks yeah. to all the technology and its heat shield. And we're talking a total, if everything is nominal, of 24 orbits of the sun. And it's going to be moving much faster than any other spacecraft at a rate of 430,000 miles per hour. That's noticeably faster than anything else, including Voyager. Um, but even then, that that orbit's still going to take 88 days because the sun is enormous. Yeah, using Venus too, right? Like the, the boy, the dynamics of doing orbits and or like, like orbital mechanics, it's so counterintuitive in so many ways and yet they're so clever in what they're doing to use those uh use those uh Venus flybys to to get things to get tighter and tighter and tighter. Um but that's all you can do, right? You can't load up enough propellant to get in exactly the right orbit it would be cost prohibitive but you can use the other objects in the solar system to steer you where you need to go and that's what it's doing here yeah so so there we go that is the uh the solar probe long time coming yeah i think we're gonna learn we're gonna learn a lot it's gonna take time obviously it's gonna be out there for a long time doing its stuff but um you know and they the exciting thing about science as in these articles you hear the scientists talking they're like we're we're gonna run into things that we have no idea about and that's exciting to learn that's how you learn new things and the the sun as i said before going out on a limb here the sun is important and we don't know as much about it as we should and so now we're gonna have a better idea yep so uh so yeah if you want to learn more we have a bunch of links in our show notes at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 78 while you're there, you can get in touch with us via email, of course, or you can follow the link over to our Tumblr, where Jason and I post links and stories about space stuff in between episodes. Or you can just find us on Twitter. Jason is J Snell, and you can find me there as ISMH. And until our next Fortnite, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. <laughs>